0: Hello, everybody. Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I am very pleased to be speaking once again with Jeremiah Allen, who is a Christian entrepreneur currently living in Belize. And we spoke to Jeremiah last year, last summer, I believe it was, which was uh, 263, I think, TMR, 263, called On Disruptions and Preparations. If anybody wants to go and check that out, I do recommend, have a listen to that. Um, We were talking at the time about the many... Disruptions that might well come into our lives in the days ahead, and uh, the various ways in which we might become prepared, physically, spiritually, for such events. So, um, as I did last time, by way of introduction, I shall just read briefly from Jeremiah's short bio here. Jeremiah is a 40 well, 42 year old now, 42 year old uh, former US. Army soldier and Iraq War veteran from 2004 2005. And after leaving military service, he worked as a computer network security expert for the US Missile Defense Agency. In 2013, he left his lucrative career and relocated his wife and two children to pursue Christian ministry in Belize as an entrepreneur. And Jeremiah is passionate about Jesus and sharing the good news with others by living out the Great Commission in everyday life and I'll come back actually in a few minutes to that that last sentence there so Jeremiah it's great to be speaking with you again after all this time thanks for coming back on the show
1: hey thanks for having me back Jillian. it's a pleasure to be here
0: great to be speaking with you again I mean since the last time we spoke I suppose uh, quite a lot has happened a lot of water under the bridge as we say so I'm just wondering how things are with you I mean how have you and your family been uh, getting on over the last 12 months or just over 12 months
1: Well, it's been an interesting uh, journey these last two and a half years, right, around the world, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, But here where we are in Belize, um, we live uh, near a Mennonite community called Spanish Lookout, and things got back to fairly close to normal pretty quickly within the community. Um, The Belize government has ratcheted down the lockdowns and the other restrictions, just like most other countries around the world over these past, uh, what, four or five months now. So um, things have gotten relatively back to, quote unquote, normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's still quite a bit of people, especially in the cities, wearing masks and that sort of thing. Uh, some of the businesses here are requiring that you sanitize your hands when you come in. Uh, I haven't seen any recently that are requiring mask wearing. Uh, vaccine mandates have been dropped for quite a while. They were requiring vaccination to go into public um Government offices, so vehicle registration office or immigration office or oh, right. things like that, which was quite draconian. Mm. But uh, those things have been dropped. Even quarantine and testing requirements coming back into Belize have been dropped now as well.
0: Were there any mandates for people in particular professions and that sort of thing? Because obviously we had care workers over here and uh, in the NHS it was being threatened. It didn't actually happen, but uh, it was threatened.
1: Yes, uh, all of the um, what they called frontline workers, so medical services, law enforcement, government uh, offices, most of them were mandated. But uh, even if they weren't mandated in their particular office, there was lots of coercion and and pressure and uh, Hmm. pretty horrible. Um, But not only within the official places, Uh, Julian, we've heard lots of stories of the government, um, the vaccination teams going out into the villages. Now, Belize is still considered a third world country. And there are many villages here where there is quite a bit of uh, poverty And uh, they were going out and being very harsh with people, not necessarily always being honest, Mm -hmm. telling them that these vaccines were mandatory, that their kids couldn't go to school if they didn't get shots, that they wouldn't be able to get any kind of government services if they didn't get their shot, and so on and so forth, and, and really scaring people and coercing people into getting their vaccines. And Right. um the rise in deaths uh, have been forthcoming since then. so it's uh, it's not a nice situation. Just recently, I was talking with uh, a friend in a village uh, and where he's at, there's been three of his neighbors just recently who were previously healthy who've had uh, blood clots or other heart issues wow. and died. Mm-hmm. Just in these past six months and he was asking them, are you going to complain or, or fight or, or whatever? And they're like, we don't even have money to go to the city, much less hire a lawyer or, or yeah. try to raise any ruckus, you know? Yeah, you know, so people's lives are being destroyed and they're really under the radar. So...
0: Yeah, it's, it's hugely worrying and going back to, yeah. uh, you know, the fear, you know, trying to make people feel fearful that they should have these uh, injections. I mean, was there a massive media propaganda campaign over there as well as there has been in other places?
1: Very much. Right. Yeah, mm. there's four or five large uh, media businesses that uh, cover news in Belize, and there's a few newer startups, but all of them seem to be uh, following the narrative, even pre-COVID, there was a Christian pastor of Nazarene Church in the capital city, who uh, I know personally, and he had always been, in, in the eight years that I've been here in Belize, so the first five and a half before COVID, he had always been kind of a government watchdog and calling out corruption and speaking truth to power and that sort of thing. But man, when COVID started, he jumped on the bandwagon, and it was kind of a shock to me. Mm-hmm. He really bought hook, line, and sinker. And I thought, man, the one media organization that I would hope that would be speaking out against this stuff. He's promoting it, mm. and that was really uh, discouraging, I would say, or, or frustrating, maybe. <laughs>
0: yeah, indeed. It's been a very strange time. There are certain voices you would have expected to stand against some of these things, have been silent over the time. Uh, it has been very surprising in a number of ways. And um, what about you personally and your family with respect to this? I mean, obviously, you were feeling the propaganda and the coercion, but uh, you know, how did you react to all that?
1: I guess uh, I have been anticipating these types of things for a long time, I feel like we were fairly well prepared. Um, hmm. I mean, going back to our previous conversation, we were talking about preparing for disruptions. Yeah, My life has been marked by, I think, the Lord's um, discipline to get me ready for these types of things. Hmm. So through the whole thing, I almost feel like we've been standing on the sideline trying to wave warning flags to friends and family and say, Hey, this is what's going on. And, and uh, so I feel like personally, I have been somewhat of an advocate for truth and for pushback. You know, um, Mm. in your recent conversation, 284, uh, Stephen, I can't remember the last name. uh, Steve Buckley, yeah. Mm -hmm. One of his points was pushback. Mm. And um, I've been on that uh, pathway. So.
0: Well, congratulations. (laughs) You're on the right path there. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, well, uh, there's loads uh, more to discuss about this. So um, what we're going to be doing today really is, you mentioned about the Stephen Buckley uh, interview and the conversation I had with Phil Saker before that. In a sense, those two are sort of like the beginning of a a mini-series. I always talk about these series I'm having, and they never really turn into series. But perhaps now this could be a third conversation to make a little series here. So we're going to be picking up in a way on that theme of following Christ in the new old normal, which is what I called it. So um, I just need to recap for people who are perhaps new to this idea. What I mean by following Christ in the new old normal is something like, um, you know, thank heavens, most of us have been able to get back to something like the old normal in our lives after this COVID event. That is, most of us have, um, you know, as opposed to the so-called new normal that we were threatened with. But, you know, I think we shouldn't be happy just to return to the old normal exactly. And I think that's whoever we are. Um, there's so much to learn from this um, because there has been so much evil that has unfolded in the last two to three years that we really need a new attitude, whoever we are again, um, of awakeness to this sobering world that we live in to meet the days ahead. So we're going to be talking about that. Um, I'll come back to that in a moment. Can we start with you saying a few words about your background. Um, Obviously we went into a a lot of detail last time about the ways in which your life has changed over many years, but uh, obviously not everybody's heard that. So let me ask you, you going back to your bio where it says this, um, you're passionate about Jesus and sharing the good news with others by living out the Great Commission in everyday life. What do you mean by that living out Jesus's Great Commission in everyday life? And and how Did your life change over the years to bring you to that way of thinking, and to that way of living?
1: Well, I'd just like to start by saying I really like the way that you put this new old normal idea, Julian, because Hmm. I think part of the reason you're having these conversations, one of the reasons you're talking to me is maybe because I wasn't living the normal life previously. Yes. And so I think I kind of had a sense that we needed a new normal Mm. as Christians before COVID even happened. And so now as this disruption has kind of forced us to rethink things, how do we, Mm. uh, how do we move forward into a new sense of what, what is this new normal all about? And for me, it hasn't changed much because I had grappled with some of these questions prior to COVID, um, I am not reevaluating that, but for many of your listeners and and many of my friends and family and many people within the church and outside the church, they're looking at the world and thinking, how how do I grapple with these things? What does this new world look like? Mm. How do I move forward? Mm. So going back to your reference to my bio, Mm. living out the great commission in everyday life, uh, I was raised in a very mainstream Christian home where I acknowledged that the Lord was my savior and I believed that Jesus forgave my sins and that I needed him and that sort of thing. But uh, alongside that, I looked at uh, the U.S. government as the good guys and everybody else as the bad guys. Uh, I looked at uh, the parable of the sower and saw myself and just made the assumption that I was a seed planted in good soil. Mm-hmm. And as I came into uh, a, a new level of maturity and as the Lord kind of opened my eyes and softened my heart, I started to realize that, gosh, maybe I'm not the seed planted in good soil. Maybe I'm really a seed that was planted among the thorns. I, I looked at my um, my 401k, mm-hmm. uh, similar to the way the people in Taro, Japan, looked at this big seawall that they'd built to save themselves from a tsunami that I was erecting for myself my own walls of security instead of trusting the Lord to be my provider and my my helper and my fortress and that sort of thing yeah. so with those uh, convictions from the Lord that I had kind of relegated him to the backseat and put these other things in the forefront of my life, I decided I needed to rearrange. So living out the Great Commission in my everyday life, I, I just started really taking seriously the call that the gospel gives us. And I decided I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk in love. Mm. I'm going to be radically generous or radically humble. Mm. Um, that, that doesn't always come across in my speech because I'm quite confident <laughs> in what the Lord has given me and what the Lord has done for me. But I'm very humble before him, recognizing that without him, I'm nothing. Hmm. Um,
0: oh, I think that does come over actually. You are confident in speaking, but your humility is is clear yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, you were sitting pretty, weren't you, in financial terms and in career terms so you you did give up a lot in order to have this different lifestyle was going to Belize part of that decision to serve him. I think you talked about being Jesus' hands and feet last time. You know, that metaphor of the Holy Spirit working through you and doing the Lord's work. Going to a place like Belize, was that part of that change of Yes, very view? much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and and we came here with a, a nest egg of savings that was just pretty much enough to uh, buy our, our little home, a little wood house on a half acre. And um oh and kind of survive for the first few months while I tried to get my feet under me and and figure out how I was going to provide for my family. Hmm. But my mindset was very much a Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, or moth and rust destroy, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And then he follows that up with, but seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So I believe that I had been living for these things, And I decided I was going to reorient my life to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Mm. And Julian, in the last eight years here in Belize, he has poured out abundantly. And I can't believe how many of these things that I used to pine for he's blessed me with here. And now I have a completely different perspective on these things. They're not my treasure. They're blessing that he's poured out on me when I seek ye first his kingdom. Mm. So, yeah, uh, we we moved into a new house uh, three months ago. We just finished building, which is um, amazing. It's um, on a hilltop and and wow. three times the size of our little wooden house, and uh, completely off grid. And wow. and I feel so overwhelmed just by His blessing, and yet I know it's only by Him and and from Him, and I can hold it lightly. It's not my treasure. We talked about that last time as well, right? Holding mm-hmm. things lightly.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the idea of being off grid, fantastic. A lot of people are talking about that, but actually be doing that, um, is so appealing. And in fact, just before the interview, you were talking about, in a sense, uh, slightly analogous, having a kind of off gridness or kind of parallel experience of church during the pandemic time, which of course is going to plug in nicely to this little series of conversations here, because that's one of the main things I'm asking for these conversations is how can we be church in a, a way that's continuous with, of course, Orthodox Christianity with a, with a small O, you know, doing church in a different way, but that is connected to Jesus and the apostles and the tradition that's come from there, but cognizant of the times that we live in. So you have had something of a parallel experience of church during this time, as indeed you now have a parallel kind of life off the grid. So do you want to give us a little taste of that? and Maybe we'll talk a bit more about it in a bit. What do you think?
1: Well, I would like to start off by just talking a little bit about denominations. Oh, okay. And and that being my upbringing as a child, I was brought up in a non-denominational church. Uh And then later on, uh, we shifted to an evangelical free church. Hmm. And in 2003, when I joined the military, all of a sudden I was in a melting pot of lots of different flavors of Christianity that I was very ignorant of. And then coming down here to Belize in 2014, for the first time, I've been kind of exposed to and trying to understand a little bit more about What are all these different doctrines Mm. and ideas and denominations and why do so many people and the more I learn, the less interested I am Uh (laughs) and the more interested I am in just loving all of them. And so my experience here in Belize in this last eight years has been one of gathering and being brother and sister to people from many, many different backgrounds mm. and denominational uh, doctrinal views. Yes. And uh, Jesus said he came to bring the sword. And I think what he meant was he wants division between unrighteousness and righteousness. Mm. But he also prayed for unity. And where he wants unity is in truth. Yes, And so what is truth? Truth is the basics, right? Yeah. That Christ died for my sins and that that he is my only hope for salvation. He's my only hope for righteousness. Mm-hmm. And
0: Absolutely. What, what I find really interesting about this is that, you know, your description there about being quite fair enough, not being interested in the distinctives about various denominations and how they might separate us, but the core is the main things that we believe in our relationship with Christ. Uh, But you're coming at that from a very grassroots experience level of actually meeting other people, talking with those people, fellowshipping with those people. That's not normally how the quote-unquote ecumenical movement is thought of mm-hmm. and i have I have a problem um, the more I think about this, the more I have a problem with the ecumenical movement as a kind of top down thing mm-hmm. where we are in terms of our organizations deciding okay we well, we will meet together, we will cooperate together, or, and I think there was this thing between the Methodists and the Anglicans called organic unity <laughs> um, because I have found with that scene there's been a tendency to water down distinctives, which can sound like that's a good thing, but actually. The consequence of that quite often is that we don't talk about anything to do with teaching because we don't want anything that's going to separate us yeah. and upset people. So, and that becomes kind of a corrosive acid where you don't talk about anything of interest. That's right. Whereas I'm coming more to the thought now that in some ways we do actually need to have the opposite direction where we're quite happy with a proliferation of different denominations, and I don't necessarily mean denominations in the old sense, but new churches, new forms of church, where we may disagree on, on some points with another group of believers, and that's fair enough. What we do agree on, and worship together maybe even, is, you know, the core things that we believe, that we trust in Jesus Christ, and we believe that he died for our sins, and all these these major core things. Because what I'm seeking at the moment is some form of radically different way of doing church. That's moving in the opposite direction of ecumenism. Somebody could point to me and say, oh, yeah, but you're you're breaking away from, you know, the Methodists. You're breaking away from the Baptists or whatever. You're creating a new denomination. This is bad. This isn't unity. But in a sense, I think, yeah, but it's unity where it matters. Uh It's unity in those core things and where we can cooperate. Mm -hmm. But actually on a sort of almost an anarchistic model, I'm quite happy for there to be as many denominations as you like, as long as we agree on the on the main things. Do you see what I mean? So that I can say, Uh I'm not really happy with this church. I'm not happy with the way it's going. I'd rather go over there. And that's not necessarily seen as a bad thing. You know, I can go over there with this perhaps group of six people or whatever and and worship and live a Christian life within that context and still cooperate and worship with other people but i've just moved into a different mini denomination if you like um do you see what i mean what i'm driving at here Um,
1: absolutely i like the way that you put it that uh, the the ecumenical mm. movement from the top down uh, what it tends to lead to is kind of a watering down of we don't talk about the differences Mm. and i think that's exactly the opposite of what we need for a healthy christian community we need to understand that we can love each other despite our differences and that yes. by discussing our differences, we can strengthen our own understanding or Absolutely. we can enlighten one another to revelation that the Lord's given us about this thing or that thing. And, and we can love one another and still disagree on certain things.
0: Absolutely. And the paradox, it, well, it isn't a paradox. <laughs> no, it's uh, the illuminating thing for me, which I didn't expect to be illuminating, was I go back to it time and again. I don't apologize for this. I stand in the park. I'm meeting lots of people there, mm-hmm. majority of whom are not Christian. Mm-hmm. And we are talking about all kinds of things and disagreeing, mm-hmm. frequently disagreeing about it. And it doesn't matter because there is something that binds us together about our concern for you know freedom human rights and where the world is going and all yeah. that. this binds us together and i'm thinking that in itself is a model of church it's this healthy view of ecumenism, if you like, which I was just trying to express. Mm -hmm. And indeed, you you were echoing there, yeah, we can disagree. We can disagree, that's fine, but we can learn from each other and we can love each other. And that top-down approach does not achieve that. It just creates wooliness and doesn't attract anybody. Mm -hmm. And it's not the kind of unity that I think Jesus was talking about there in John's Gospel.
1: Yeah, so in my own experience here in Belize, uh, before the the lockdowns came in early 2020, I was attending a church. Um, My Sunday church is a uh, non-denominational church, and it's a seeker-friendly church Mm -hmm. uh, alongside many of the churches that I would have criticism for uh, where I came from. Um, Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it tends to be very relevant, and they do speak truth, even though it's mostly milk. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a place for that. As long as they're not getting into prosperity gospel or these other uh, modern mm. uh, doctrines that border on heresies, <laughs> right. and, uh, yes. I, I can appreciate a seeker-friendly attitude, and mm. it does attract uh, many seekers. Mm. And so I see that Sunday church as... A mission field as an opportunity to Hmm. witness to people who are seekers who don't know the lord yet and who are looking for truth and they're they're getting a taste of truth some milk which is very easy to digest
0: absolutely it's interesting you say that because uh, there will be many times where somebody has come to the methodist church that i go to that we go to and it's pretty boring Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you you seldom hear a really straightforward gospel message And quite often I've said to people, look, you'd be better off going to that church down the road. (laughs) You know, in a sense, I shouldn't say that, but I'm thinking that's what they need. And in fact, if we all did that, if we all said, look, there's something about this church over there that perhaps you need, and there's a something about that church over there that You need, you know, we could point people in different directions like that and um, have a kind of unity in that way.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And then at the same time, I was uh, gathering uh, once a week with a home church. Um, This is a group of more conservative, more traditional Mennonites. Uh, Uh I say more because there's a a wide range of Mennonites here, but Uh from the local community here. And uh, they're part of a movement started back in the uh, mid 20th century by Witness nee and Watchman Lee, oh. or maybe I get those names backwards, yes. the Chinese missionaries who yes. came to the States. And it's called Local Church. And um, I'd never heard of it before coming to Belize, but there's uh, quite a um, large segment here who have adopted that form of worship. And they have doctrines that I definitely disagree with. They're kind of coming at things from a more Calvinistic type of a perspective Uh and that sort of thing. Mm. Uh, But we've been meeting with them for— going on seven and a half years now and it's wonderful we have friendship we break bread together almost every week Uh, we sing together Um, it's Mm. not very structured it's very organic and it's fabulous I mean it's it's a group Mm. that we come and we feel loved and we love the others and we don't agree on everything and when when there's disagreement we have a discussion about it and and then we hug each other and we meet again next week Mm. you know
0: yeah, absolutely, it's brilliant. When we were in Sheffield, we were at a house church that had come out of the charismatic movement. It was still charismatic, but um, it had matured into something more... Um, of its own character, and in fact, it was during the time of the Toronto blessing, and some of that stuff, as you may know, became a little bit over the top and the church decided we're going to stop using spiritual gifts for the moment, we're going to sort of audit the situation we're going to go back to the scripture and to be trained again, as it were, by what particularly what Paul had written there. Well, they took a very careful position on that, but they were actually the leader of that church was very, very Calvinistic. And as listeners will know, I'm Methodist, of course, I'm in the Wesleyan tradition, so my position is is Arminian. But that didn't actually bother us. We were there for two, three years, and the chap that was in charge was a really lovely chap. And... You know, there were lovely people there, and we had all kinds of conversations. And uh, I remember, you know, going and having a meal, actually, with Peter, who was in charge of the church, and talking all this stuff through, and it really didn't matter at all. So, as you say, it is possible to fellowship very deeply with people who you have these peripheral disagreements with. It really doesn't matter. And it's there's something really fresh and beneficial about having that lively debate where you don't fall out. You have fellowship in your disagreement. Mm-hmm. You can experience that. It can be great.
1: And there was a stark difference between these two churches when the lockdowns happened. Our Mm. non-denominational mainstream Big Sunday church shut down for almost a year. Right. Well, I think in May of 2020, so just one month, uh, Belize locked down at the beginning of April. And mid-May, I wrote an open letter to the pastors here in Belize. I had spent a lot of time locked down believing that the pandemic was legitimate and that we need to be careful and not put at risk those in high-risk categories and so, so on and so forth yeah. for the first month and a half or so of the lockdown the first two months of worldwide lockdowns and um by late april early may i started realizing something's not right we started seeing lots of studies coming out showing the effectiveness and whatnot of hydroxychloroquine we talked about this a little bit in our first conversation. Yeah. And I started realizing, look, this isn't as bad as we thought it was. We gave them two weeks to flatten the curve. It's past that now. It's time to reopen the church and get back to worship. And yeah. I explained all this in a one-page open letter to the pastors here in Belize, and I, I, I just heard crickets. Nothing Nothing happened. <laughs> that was a bit frustrating. But our home church, on the other hand, we stopped uh, gathering for about a month. And then by early mid-May, we uh, decided, uh, okay, this is enough is enough. Let's get back to gathering again. And um, we just kind of continued on. Now, that church meets in our individual homes, and we rotate from one home to another and that sort of thing. Hmm. The only thing that was a little bit uh, scary was that the government had mandated a curfew. And, of course, there was limitations on number of people gathering. So, technically, they were illegal gatherings. Right. And, technically, if we were out past curfew, we could get a ticket. I was pulled over twice being out past curfew, which I think was 9 p.m. And, usually, we would we would uh, finish up our gatherings between 9 and 9.30. So, we were always rushing to get home by curfew because uh, the police were out patrolling and looking for people hmm. driving around past curfew. But – uh I never was ticketed I was able to talk myself out of those tickets and uh, mm-hmm. and they were $500 each which was $250 wow. US
0: Well the force was with you <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I just think of that scene with uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi saying you don't want to give me a ticket <laughs> I don't want to give you a ticket <laughs> But uh, you you yeah. presumably you had a sense that you were in the right with God here that you were yeah, that's you right. as a community of believers should be gathering together and worshiping God. And it was clear to you that the government was in the wrong at this point.
1: Yeah, we were following God's law instead of man's law. Yes,
0: yes. Well, let's move on to a series of questions that I have about some of the serious things that it seems we are facing. When I contacted you, when we had a back and forth about this conversation, initially, you said to me, well, we really do need to define what The new normal meant or means, um, so that we can have a conversation about this. And you, you had a whole list of things that you felt were connoted by that term. You mentioned the global drive towards centralization of power, the social division promoted by media, the decline, the accelerated decline in the quality and quantity of Human relationships, very clearly seen over the last couple of years or so. The promotion of an elitist, utopian vision for the future with the powers that should not be, increasingly trying to play God, as it were. Um, and as we've already touched on, you know, Christians, you know, the continued division both within and without the churches are on the, on the positive side. Some sense of a process of refinement of believers going on, which we certainly touched on with the previous conversation with Stephen Buckley. Um There's an awful lot in there, and of course, other stuff as well. I'm particularly concerned about the central bank digital currencies, which I find a very threatening idea. Lots of people do. So what I want to do with this is address some of those and hopefully find something from your experience and your imagination for the future as to how we might, as Christians, live in the context of those threats. And those realities, depending upon actually what happens. So, is there anywhere that you'd like to start with all those concerns, those connotations of the new normal? Um, Where would you like to start with that?
1: I think with the idea that interpersonal relationships have been harmed and that this is maybe an unintended consequence of any agenda. Except, I think, from a spiritual perspective, Satan doesn't want us to have intimacy with one another or with the Lord. Mm. And uh, we can see so many different ways in which intimate relationships have been damaged through the COVID crisis. Mm. Um, and I would start probably with discussing the family I think we can see probably going back decades how uh, the decline of the family has been damaging to so many societies around the world. The destroying of interpersonal relationships, I think, is an antithesis to uh, God's Mm. desire and purpose for us. Mm. He wants us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. What he's describing there is a passionate intimate relationship with him and then the second greatest commandment love your neighbor as yourself yes so uh, the opposite of that is isolating yourself and being selfish uh, only thinking about me all the time and Mm. our world more and more and more more is pushing in that direction where we're constantly encouraged and uh, rewarded for putting yourself as number one and mm. uh, forget about the other guy What what's best for you once what's, what's in it for me right all these different ideas mm,
0: mm. and one thing i really noticed over the last couple of years is how technology, well, already technology had fed into that isolation, that decrease in interpersonal relationship. That's been clear. In fact, I have a, mm-hmm. a, a conversation with David Greenockle about that um, a few years back. Mm-hmm. But of course, over the last two years, that went on steroids, didn't it? Um, where we were having all these zoom calls. And even in the churches, there were services where you could just turn on your computer and you could watch what was happening. And, uh, you know, hours after it had actually happened and it'd be not necessarily connecting with anybody else at all, just being like a passive viewer of a television program. Um, and I've noticed how some churches have. Not exactly celebrated that, but I've said, "Oh, there's something we can learn from that experience." And you know, maybe people who can't get to a church service could benefit from that. And, and okay, that's fine. But one of the knock-on effects of that is I think that some people who could indeed enter into face-to-face fellowship like they did before will find, oh, actually, it's easier just to stay at home and participate in an act of worship in a very passive TV sense. And I think that's very unhealthy. Um, And it reminds me, actually, of the conversation I did have with David Greenockle, because he was talking about uh, Marshall McLuhan and the view how technology changes our perception of time and space. He came up with the example, I think it was the light bulb or something, you know, now when the light bulb happened, it meant that you could turn the light bulb on whenever you like, and you could read a book, you know, at night. Mm-hmm. So that changed your perception of the of the time of day. And then we also talked about um, central heating. So, oh, now you can sit in whichever room you like, and you don't have to huddle around with the family next to the fireplace. Now you can be in your own room separated. And of course, now you've got the tech. You can, you know, all watching TV together and discussing the program. Now you're in separate rooms doing your own thing, et cetera. And he said, he felt that there was a change in the perception of the sacred. Mm. There are no sacred times or spaces anymore where there's time to just sit and be aware of the fact that you're in the presence of God and you can pray to God because there's all this business that's going on, you know, beep, 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 ping, 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 that sort of and I reflecting upon that conversation with respect to what we've experienced over the last couple of years, that really became very obvious there was no sense of the sacred. You could really turn on the church service whenever you like and say, well, oh, I'll turn it off now mm-hmm. or I'll turn it back on again. Or And after a while, I started to think, I'm not sure I can even be bothered with that because it's just so uninteresting, you know, mm-hmm. and you're not really part of it. It's distance. And so it became completely irrelevant to me after a while. And I'm only saying that because I feel there must be lots of people who've had that sort of experience, that loss of the sacred, that distancing effect. Mm -hmm. And I'm hearing many people say, oh, people are not coming back to the churches. They're not coming back into fellowship. Mm -hmm. And is it because of that process where we've been pushed further and further, more isolated from each other, We've forgotten what it is to fellowship together.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of people would acknowledge this with their lips, but even in our previous normal, there have been opportunities for them to go and be physically present. uh, And I'm thinking specifically of the church. Think about these mega churches where you're physically present. And yet there's still no intimacy. There's still no interpersonal relationship. Mm. So some people have been primed for this new wave of technology. And some people who reject this idea that, no, I can't just sit at home and watch on my TV because I have to go be present. And then that becomes just a act of religious duty right well i'll go to the church mm-hmm. but uh, i'm going to slip out the door immediately afterward or or whatever if you don't have the interpersonal relationship yeah. the the intimacy then are you really um getting what the lord has mm-hmm. for you and i'm not saying that that has to be at sunday church no. but we need it from somewhere
0: absolutely that's right mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. I'm concerned about the meshing of our experience of God with this technology as well. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: Well, let me bring up another point, too. Think about how uh, 20 years ago, if you wanted to do something that you'd never done, a do-it-yourself project around the house, you would call a friend who'd done it before. And now we just ask Google Mm. or Alexa hey, Alexa, how do I do such and such? And you watch a YouTube video, right? And I'm guilty of this, right? Mm -hmm. If I want to know how to do something, Mm -hmm. the internet's the first place I turn. And it's a fantastic tool for doing things like that. Mm -hmm. But what are the negative repercussions mm. of that, right? Mm. How has that destroyed the connections that we used to have? Mm.
0: Absolutely. Uh, you
1: know, that's just one little microcosm, one little example of what mm. I'm talking about.
0: It's very important, though, because I have so often heard you know, technology is a positive thing, and we've we've got to keep up with the times, and the churches will be talking about this. Oh, we've installed this, and we've installed that, screens here and cameras here. Mm. And there's never, well, there probably is, but I haven't heard conversations where people are saying, no, just a minute, how is this going to negatively impact us? Us. How are we going to get sucked into this? And certainly, I've never heard any conversation about, just a minute, how does this affect the sacred space that's been going on for hundreds and thousands of years and now is changing that conceptual space? Uh, that's a very, very important conversation to have. You know, A media philosophy is now actually something that needs to be taken seriously within the Christian church. Yeah. Um, this is probably an overreaction, but my feeling about this is... I want to push all of that away and I don't want to have anything to do when it comes to my relationship with God and my fellowship with other Christians is to have nothing to do with technology at all. Let's just be really simple. Let's just meet in person and use no microphones and no screens or anything like that. Just be authentically present together you know Mm -hmm. Um, but that's probably an overreaction Um,
1: it's interesting here in belize there are still many uh small communities of extremely conservative mennonite groups who still use horse and buggy and don't have any electricity and mm -hmm. and that sort of thing and so kind of the extreme anti-technology side is present uh in my backyard so to Mm -hmm. speak um Mm -hmm. and so you know i came to belize pushing back Just like what you were just describing, Mm. Uh, not just on technology, but I guess on the systems and the institutions that I had Mm. believed were for me and started recognizing were not necessarily for me. But uh, part of that is the technology as well. And I think the last point I had was the utopic vision of the future would be powers are playing God. So this isn't something that's new that's just post COVID. But I think the awareness of that idea is new, mm. um, that that the awareness that the globalist uh, elites uh, or, or for lack of a better term, whatever you want to <laughs> call them, yes, they, they do very much have an agenda and a vision for Creating a utopia for us and it requires all of these new technologies and it relies on and and expects that we will accept and move forward with all these new ideas. Yes. And, Can I just say, I don't, and, yeah, um,
0: sorry, I just want to make it mm-hmm. clear that I'm not against technology. I mean, I couldn't be, could I? I was sat here in front of, well, I've got a laptop screen and I've got two other screens here and I'm speaking to the microphone and I've got earbuds. I mean, it would be absurd and everything is dependent here upon the internet. That's not my point. I said that I was overreacting. Mm-hmm. What I'm calling for, and I'm, I think you are too, is to be super aware of this mm-hmm. and to critique the use of technology in our midst. That's what I don't see happening.
1: It's the postmodern lie, right? That all progress forward is unmitigated good, and it's not true. Absolutely right. Uh, And we can see that loud and clear right in front of us right now with the vaccines, right? Yeah. But uh, there are many other examples, right? Biogenetic engineering and the idea of GMO crops, you know, and and, Mm. uh, man, when you dig into some of that stuff, there have been some successes and there's been a tremendous amount of failures. So progress is not always a good thing. And, and yes, I, I agree with you. We need to have a healthy skepticism because we know that as we approach the end, the Antichrist is going to use a mm-hmm. uh, quote-unquote beast system that the, the, the Revelation describes, mm-hmm. and it will, be, uh, it will rely on technology. This mark that will prevent you from buying or selling. I think we've had little glimpses and yes. and and samples of what is, what are they talking about in Revelation over these past year and a half. You know, with vaccine passports Absolutely. or or lockdowns or whatever, right? These different regulations that government has put in place and and all of them didn't yeah. quite work very well. And it's simply because the technology is not quite good enough. And if they're able to uh, perfect the technology, oh, then it's going to work great. Mm. And, uh, and I, we look mm. at uh, China and their success yes. with um, dealing with COVID. Well, and I'm putting success in air quotes there, right? <laughs>
0: right. Yeah, And their social credit system. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what amazes me is that I haven't heard anybody, at least in the Christian circles I know around about here where we live, picking up on all this and then linking that to prophetic statements in the Bible, such as, of course, Revelation 13, and saying, look, this is pointing in that direction. Let's learn from this. Let's be really cautious about the way things are shaping up. And it's just not happening, which is incredible. And now we've gone. Coming down the line, the central bank digital currency idea with the possibility of programming that money. And so you could find that there are things that you just cannot do. You cannot go three miles from your house or whatever. They want to put a lockdown. Well, there's nothing you could do, is there? You couldn't buy petrol for your car. Or perhaps you've said something on social media that's not liked and you find that, you know, your access to your, your funds is blocked until you put that right or w- whatever it is. Um, it's a very worrying situation that does link into that prophetic vision that's there. And the idea that we're not taking this seriously and discussing this in Christian communities, I'm sure it is in many Christian communities, but not in my experience, we should be talking about these things. This is a right. a danger that's right there in front of our faces. And to say, oh, well, you know, that's conspiracy theory. No, because of what you've just said, we've been through instances of this over the last couple of years, and we've seen people's accounts being frozen because they've mm-hmm. done something that the states doesn't like for example in canada mm-hmm. these things have actually happened yeah. um and in china yeah indeed
1: are you familiar with with the quantum computing
0: i'm not familiar with it of course i've heard of it and the great power that that is predicted to supply but i'm not familiar with it
1: because i would link that into the conversation here uh-huh. aha yeah. do yeah enlighten quantum, me <laughs> yeah quantum computing is unlike traditional computing. Mm. Um the first uh, working quantum computer was demonstrated back in 2009. Okay. And I remember reading the press release on it back in 2009. Of course, I come from a technological background, from an IT background, mm. and I was fascinated. And of course, back then, I was still buying the lie of postmodernism. And I was very pro, the more technology, the better, you know, the faster, the more accurate, the more powerful, let's go. Um, In 2011, uh, the company is called D-Wave. They're out of Canada, uh, and they demonstrated the first working quantum computer. A quantum computer doesn't use ones and zeros Mm -hmm. like a traditional computer. It uses what they call qubits. And I won't bore you with the technology, (laughs) but I would rather jump to something that Gordy Rose, he is the founder of D-Wave, said in 2015, he was giving a presentation, he was up on stage and he was talking about quantum technology. He was describing his machine. Uh, you can find this clip on YouTube. It's called Quantum Computing Artificial Intelligence is Here. Okay. And um, at 11 minutes and 30 seconds in the video, he starts talking about the machine that they've constructed and, and how it functions and what it sounds like. And, and he says it gives like a pulse, like a heartbeat and then uh, at 12 minutes and 30 seconds he says when you're standing next to it it's awe inspiring and he says it's almost like standing next to the altar of some alien god right mm. and i find it fascinating because he was talking about how essentially a quantum computer samples results of the questions that you present to it amongst an innumerable amount of parallel alternate universes or other dimensions. And he was saying they don't really completely understand how it works, but there are all these different parallel, we believe there are all these different parallel universes. And we put the question into this quantum computer and it goes out and looks in all these different parallel universes and the one that comes back with the right answer and it happens simultaneously. Um, But for me, what this sounds like is um, when studying apologetics, Dr. William Lane Craig lays out a case for his understanding of the doctrine of omniscience. And uh-huh. God's omniscience, he says, he describes it as um, middle knowledge. Oh, yes. And the yes. idea of middle knowledge is that God can imagine any possible world mm. in any possible world. He knows what would happen or what would not happen but he also knows exactly what will happen in the actual world. And so when I heard Gordy Rose describing how quantum computers work, I thought they are attempting to build a machine with God's omniscience.
0: Right. I see where you're coming from with that. Yes, I, I found middle knowledge very interesting. The only thing that I think about this is that when theologians are talking about middle knowledge and God's choosing between different possible worlds. Those worlds are complete histories from the beginning of that world to the end of that world, including all the data within that particular world. This is a, an absolute mass of information. And then comparing all the possible worlds, and then the divine mind chooses between all of those according to what it is that the divine mind wishes to bring about. And that would even include what are called, you know, future counterfactuals of human freedom. So the choices that we would make in those possible worlds, and then God chooses a feasible world out of, do you know what I mean? This is such, this is a picture of omniscience that is so vast. I can't imagine that Mm -hmm. quantum computing is really talking about that scale of knowledge. I suspect that when whoever it is, is talking about possible worlds, that will be a vast number of different sets of possible solutions to a problem that's put to that machine but not worlds in the sense of that omniscience
1: well it's after a specific answer out of that right so it's not necessarily analyzing every aspect of that alternate parallel uh, world or parallel universe or whatever but it is asking a specific question within that parallel universe and he says uh, we don't know exactly how that happens but it seems to be working Hmm. now Back in 2011, they had their first commercial contract, and that was with the company that I was working for. They sold their very first machine to Lockheed Martin, and it was a 128 qubit machine, meaning it had 128 active parts in the processor, and that means that it's capable of doing 2 to the 128 simultaneous queries. Wow. That's 34 times 10 to the 37th. Uh, that's right. a massive yeah. number. All right. well, certainly
0: the power of computing um, that that implies is really scary.
1: Okay, um, but, it, but that was the very first machine in 2011. Right. And since then, they've sold dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of different machines, and they've gotten more and more powerful. So earlier this year, they just demonstrated a large-scale coherent quantum annealing, which is a quantum computer with 7,000 qubits. That's 2 to the 7,000th power. So the scale that you're talking about with middle knowledge, I think they're after that kind of scale. Well, well they may be after it, but I've, I'm but quite convinced that that they'll never get to, to that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. They, they mm. will not. No. That, that's that's for sure, right? Ah, right. But, uh, right that yeah. doesn't mean yep. that they're not after. And, mm. and what are they after? Ah, they're yes. after playing God. So taking it back to our yes. conversation, yes. we were sure. talking about Technology and the way that the powers that shouldn't be are leveraging technology to try to control and, and that sort of thing, yes, whether it's yes. central bank cryptocurrency or uh, so many other aspects of our life. It could also be uh, just algorithms that Facebook or Google or other social media giants are using to try to sort through data sets. Or, uh, you know, the NSA has purchased um, uh, at least one of these D-Wave machines, and I believe they're using it to sort through the massive amounts of data they're collecting on everyone in the United States, for example. Um, But if right now we see some of these things that they're promising to take us into utopia, and we see that... Uh, It doesn't even work. It's broken. What if they improve those systems? Because that's what they're promising. Yes, it's just not good enough yet. We're making it better. And if they appear to have some success in that and things do get quote unquote better. Will that then mean that we accept it? Mm. And, and so part of the preparation for our quote unquote new normal is to understand that even if it does get better from our eyes and, yes. and the way that we see things in the flesh, is that something that we then accept? Or do we make a conscious decision that we're going to reject these ideas because it's taking us in the direction that we don't want to go? And I guess that's kind of bringing it back full circle for me is that I think they're working to a point where those uh, solutions, technological or otherwise, whether it's biotech or regular tech or the things that uh, Harari um, talks about, uh, Mm. uh, are we going to accept them if they start looking good to us?
0: Yes. Interesting you brought that name up. um, Because it strikes me that with this, although the technology itself is frightening because of its power it really is the hands in which that technology resides which is the greatest fear and when you bring up somebody like harari some of the things he says clearly bring out this attitude of playing god almost reveling in the idea
1: mm-hmm. that's right
0: although i think to be honest i think I'm not convinced by him as this public intellectual. You know, people will say that he's he's one of the smartest people on the planet. He has all these unconventional ideas. And I think actually his ideas are fundamentally pretty conventional. They're very modernist. Yeah. There's not a lot I've come across that seems particularly interesting in what he says. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he sort of put forth as this intellectual to sort of give intellectual respectability to organizations, you know, like the World Economic Forum. Yeah. Um So I just had a quote here, actually. This is from... Um the front of his website says history began when humans invented gods. And will end when humans become gods. I mean, obviously, he's done that deliberately to be sensational. But then in um, a conversation I heard, he says, uh, we humans should get used to the idea that we are no longer mysterious souls. We are now hackable animals. Of course, that's the famous quote from him. We are hackable animals. Mm -hmm. The only thing that God managed to create are, are organic beings. All these trees and giraffes and humans, they're just organic. But we are now trying to create inorganic entities, inorganic life forms, cyborgs, artificial intelligence, and so forth. If we succeed, there's a very good chance we will, then very soon we will be beyond the God of the Bible, Mm. he says. We will be beyond the God of the Bible. I mean, it's an absurd statement, just as absurd as I thought the very idea that quantum computing could actually rival God, choosing between possible worlds. But as you say, that's not the point. It's the attitude, isn't it? Yeah, that's The right. attitude. Once we have this technology, we will have gone beyond the God of the Bible. And I'd want to say straight away is, okay, show me a world that you've created, you know? <laughs> but Because that's not what he means. He just means this sense of, we've got all this power and we'll improve on things. We'll outdo God in the sense of, we'll we'll do a better job of things. And it is a worrying level of hubris, which Christians should have nothing to do with, I think. Um, <laughs> and Obviously, quotes like that bring it home. But... That's just an extreme example where you will say such a thing, but most of it is couched in terms of sustainability and inclusivity. And the Christian can be just lulled into a sense of, well, this is all good for the planet. It's all good for a nice, clean kind of capitalism in the future and nothing to worry about here. And, And I'm thinking, no, no, these are the same people who are attached to ideas and statements like that, where they think, yeah, we can make a better job of it than God himself. We should certainly distance ourselves from that kind of philosophy, that kind of ideology.
1: No, for sure. But, but we'll look back and, and look at the ways that we have slowly been, um, gaslighted into accepting these ideas. I mean, just think about, uh, GMO foods, right? Mm. Um, I was unaware of the idea that I was even eating GMO foods for most of my life. And now because I did my own homework and I stopped paying attention to the mainstream and following the narrative, I realize that that's a concern, right yes. and that it's and it is this form of humans saying no, we're going to do it better than God and mm. playing God you know yes. quote unquote
0: yes, and at the same time, um, not just humans doing it but corporations doing it who well I say who because they are legally persons um, are bent on making money more than anything else, and of course we've seen this over the last couple of years to do with these injections. You know, we've seen not fair play, we've seen lack of caution, we've know rushing it to market and suppressing dissent. But that same kind of attitude, that same kind of playbook, I'm sure is going on with these GMOs as well. The idea that, you know, if you criticize GMOs, you're anti-science you know, it's all, it's all progress and, you know, but no, no, just a minute. These are rapacious corporate entities creating their own science and suppressing science they don't like and buying off politicians. Mm-hmm. It's the same kind of dynamic that's going on. We could see that going on mm-hmm. during COVID. Well, mm-hmm. we need to have those eyes for other areas of supposed uh, progress and development it just annoys me when people say well it's progress well is it necessarily <laughs> again it comes back to that we've got to be aware and analyze things and be discerning about what's going on in the world and not just accept that mm-hmm. somebody's told us this is progress well it may not be it may be a sort of washing with the concept of progress when in fact it's just power seeking irrespective of what damage it does
1: yeah yeah the, the whole whole way that science is done in our modern world is so corrupted. Um, Corbett Report did a special in 2019 called The Crisis of Science mm. that I found very illuminating. You know, it's a, a nice condensed look at what is wrong with mm. our uh, scientific community. Right. It's one of those institutions that we uh, tend to put our faith or our trust in blindly and not realize it's fallible or, or corruptible or. Mm. Or whatever. We think, oh, no, no, science. And then right. and then Anthony Fauci came out last year and said, I am science, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, that was that was quite a, a revelatory moment in some ways,
1: wasn't it? Right. Yeah. Right. It gets
0: to that point that somebody can actually be the embodiment of an idea like that or a process mm-hmm. like that.
1: Mm-hmm. Or the mm. who coming out and saying we own the science or we are the science. Ooh, yeah. that's right. Yeah, yes. yeah, amazing stuff. But um, I think this idea that um, th- this idea of playing God or being like God or or knowing like God, um, there's something beyond. I think financial incentives for some of these um, entities, mm. and I think it has to do with the story of the fall in the Garden of Eden. Mm. And uh, if we take it back to that for a moment, we think about uh, Satan's temptation of Eve and his temptation was that you can be like God, knowing good and evil, Mm. appealing to her pride. And earlier I mentioned uh, humility, and I think there's just such a clear differentiation. If we come at God with a sense of pride, oh, he's going to save me because I did such and such. We've got it wrong. God tells us we, we understand that the gift of grace is given when we humble ourselves and recognize that he's our only hope. Mm. That's what Eve failed the test, right? She gave into her pride, and I think that same temptation is coming again, that mm. the powers that shouldn't be, they're going to offer us this forbidden fruit. You can be like God, yes. and we're yes. going to have a choice whether or not to accept that fruit mm. or to say, no, I don't want to be like God. I want to worship God, humble myself and accept his righteousness, because I can never be like him the way that you're saying. Mm.
0: I I agree with you. Um, I just want to balance up, though, something that you said, because you're right, you are speaking within the story here in Genesis 3. But I just want to balance it up in the sense that although it was Eve in the story who initially responds to this, of course, Adam also (laughs) eats from this forbidden fruit, And that is significant with both of them really, we refer to, you know, the New Testament, Paul will talk about, as in Adam all die, etc. It's significant that Adam represents the whole of humanity. You know, it's not as if it's just the woman here, (laughs) it's humanity as a whole that is responding to this temptation.
1: I would like to notch it up even one, Do. Because to me, his sin was even worse than hers because right. he didn't just <laughs> give in to the temptation mm. when he was called on it and <laughs> yes. God questioned him about it. He didn't even take he responsibility. Her. Yeah. <laughs> he he played right. the victim card. Yes. I mean. Oh, she made me do it. Oh.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. Exactly. Yes, that's right.
1: <laughs> think about. Earlier, I was talking about the breakdown of the family. Mm. And to me, it starts with men who are unwilling to accept responsibility. Mm. And and it started in the garden. I mean, he was unwilling to accept responsibility for his mistake. Yeah. So he blames her.
0: I mean, I think between the the two of us, I tend to have more of a symbolical understanding of that. Um, I do personally believe... There were, you know, first individuals who existed who did experience, you know, loss of fellowship with God through a rebellion against God, etc. But, but you know, but the details of that, how the story is constructed, I think, I mean, it's one of my favourite parts of the Bible. Actually, I think it's, it's absolutely packed full of deep theology. Um now what does the serpent say uh, you will not surely die God knows that when you eat of it um, of course this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil what a strange tree that is right. um and some people say of course this means that you know they didn't have the power to choose between good or evil but hold on that can't make sense because they were told not to eat of it so they they did in fact have the power to know the difference between what they should do and what they shouldn't do they must already have had that power of this um otherwise that command could not have been given so the tree of the knowledge of evil must mean something beyond that. And of course, what they do by eating from this is they decide for themselves what is good and what is evil. That's always struck me as the lesson here. They arrogate to themselves to decide better than God. Mm-hmm. As indeed, the serpent says, oh no, God knows that if you eat, your eyes will be opened. You know, God's hiding something from you, mm-hmm. you know. And so it's that sense that we arrogate to ourselves because of course, Adam indeed represents all of us, um, which is not to say that, oh, there wasn't a first person. Well, I'm not saying that, but nevertheless, as he very, very clearly does represent all of us. Um, and that's very clear, particularly in this, as you keep using the term, you know, this postmodern world. Mm. We're being told again and again, oh, there's no truth. You know, truth is completely relative. It depends what you think. And so we're sort of being encouraged all the time to decide what is good and what is evil for ourselves without reference to anything beyond ourselves, just what we feel within ourselves, which is, you know, deeply postmodern. Mm-hmm. And that really does hark back to that, archetypal story there. Mm-hmm. And we see that playing out big time with you know the Davos crowd, deciding for themselves this is the way forward. In fact, all narratives of the past we can just discard. We'll we'll hold on to this hypermodernist narrative insofar as it suits us. But if it doesn't suit us, we'll discard whatever we like. We'll just do what we think. You know, we're forging forward into this new world and this new reality with all these technologies at our fingertips. And it is that hubris deciding what is truth for ourselves. I really do see that. Mm. Um,
1: So imagine for, can I just give you a a hypothetical for a minute? Uh, This is what I Mm. think Mm. about moving forward. I imagine in the next 10 years or 20 years that an Elon Musk type is successful in creating a brain chip like his Neuralink. that connects us into the worldwide collection of knowledge. And that there is also simultaneously an AI entity that is a part of that knowledge or connected to that knowledge. And this may be a quantum computing uh, based AI who has superhuman intelligence and understanding because he's tapping into this. Mm. um, I say he because it's Ah. tapping into this uh, uh, multiple universe breadth of answers to the questions that we have. Can and which might appear
0: to be conscious. taken That might appear to be conscious.
1: Might appear to be conscious. That's right. That's right.
0: You know, whatever Turing test you want to chuck at it, it passes it with flying colors, you know, and everybody thinks, yeah, okay, it's indistinguishable from a human consciousness. Absolutely indistinguishable. Therefore, it must be conscious because I, right. I think there's no way it would be. <laughs> but yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I interrupted you.
1: And, and his or its uh, knowledge or its answers to the questions that we have are so far beyond human knowledge right. it appears to be like a god mm. or it appears to be a god can you imagine what would happen in society if that type of thing were to take place and and i don't think yeah. this is too far out of our imagination at this point mm. but society would become overnight almost it would become a two-tier uh, two-class society either you have or you don't if you take the brain chip you're gonna be quote unquote, like God. And if you don't, you're going to be a Luddite who can't get on and you won't be employable and you won't be. Why in the world would you want to curse yourself with the lack of this, this capability, this, um, this, this progress, you know, mm. you can't move into the modern world. What's wrong with you? Right. Yeah, And
0: to me, indeed, that's- and you've just triggered. Mm. Yes, it is very concerning. And again, this can sound like, Hey, this is science fiction, but things are moving such a pace, science fiction quickly becomes science fact. And you have triggered something I've been looking into a little to do with property dualism in philosophy, which can be close to the idea of panpsychism. Just to be very hand wavy about this, the idea that somehow the material of this universe or the stuff of this universe has various fundamental irreducible properties, for example, electrical charge. And property dualism will argue that consciousness which we experience needs to be understood as a primary property of the universe okay this is kind of the answer to the hard problem how do we deal with consciousness well it's not it's, we're not going to get there with the normal principles of physics there's got to be this other property that we have to acknowledge and it may be with this kind of idea that when you get complexity in material construction such as a human brain then this property of reality comes into a, a consciousness is formed you know, in a natural way. Now, I, I don't believe this. I don't think this is true. And one of the things I immediately think is, well, okay, why is it that when a whole bunch of elementary particles come together to form my brain, then you get a consciousness? But when all these particles come together to form the table in front of me, then I have no reason to think that is conscious. You know, there's something mm-hmm. very convenient about this complexity leading to consciousness just happens to coincide with a fundamental principle or almost occult principle of the universe so i have some deep concerns about that analysis but coming to what you were saying about ai and this quantum computing and the super complexity of this mm-hmm. if it passed the turing test so you would think well, this is indistinguishable from a conscious being Maybe we really would be with this kind of philosophy thinking, oh, yeah, well, of course, because it's it's risen to such a level of complexity here, that the property of consciousness that is inherent in the universe is now present in this machine, as it is indeed in our brains, because of course, you know, consciousness arises with complexity. Mm. And so these things are really alive and conscious. I would reject that. I don't think that's true. But this kind of panpsychic philosophy, which people are talking about could very well feed into a belief like that and then if as you say this kind of ai is so powerful then that's getting close to an idea of well this is actually something i can relate to a kind of god it's actually conscious it knows me it loves me
1: well think about where we're already at with alexa or uh, google assistant mm. Or, mm. or or siri or things mm. like that right people are already talking to these things and anthropomorphizing them yes in some way or another right mm. um The thing about this Boston Dynamics dog thing, right, Um, there are already private owners of that quote-unquote dog, and um, I'm sure (laughs) – I mean, as a joke, we have our little robot vacuum cleaner around the house, and we call it Sally. Sally. (laughs) okay i mean um
0: don't tell me you think it's conscious
1: (laughs) no no no. my family and i use it to keep levity of the situation but we have discussions about these things and we understand very clearly that where the line is right so we're not Mm. we're not luddites we don't reject all technology but at the same time we want to use those things to benefit us and not to uh, assimilate and become part of the system Mm. and and so on and so forth so yes exactly
0: well, I'd like to bring the conversation round to a subject that's very important as a kind of response to everything that we've been talking about. When we were having an email exchange prior to this, you were pointing time and again to the importance of the fruit of the spirit, as is discussed in the New Testament, which neatly, of course, connects, you know, it's got the inverse way to the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's certainly not that. It's the fruit of the Spirit instead. And you were stressing how important it is to have a clear understanding and experience of the fruit of the Spirit in order to face the days ahead. We have talked about this on the program before, um, but perhaps you could give us your take on what the fruit of the Spirit is and how important it is for us.
1: Yeah, it's interesting when we look around the world right now, there's so much happening on social media. I think of all the young people and the uh, quote-unquote influencers, the social media influencers, or uh, the media personalities, or our politicians, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, We look at those personalities, and 99.9% of them exhibit the attitudes that are at odds with the fruit of the spirit, um, they're very often prideful, angry, worried, uh, selfish. Think of our um, the rappers and the rap songs that are um, so popular. Uh, in the Bible, we're given the fruit of the spirit as the things that mark our lives as Christians. And I think it's very disruptive for us to try to navigate life Seeing that the world expects or wants or is always after things that are at odds with the fruit of the spirit, uh, think about. Um, so when we look at the list in, in Galatians, love is the first one, and I think it deserves a, a semicolon. But uh, <laughs> not to splice it too much, I think all of the others are are ways that love is manifest. Hmm. But the rest of the list is joy peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and self-control. But all of those require that we are walking in love. And I think also that we are walking in humility and not in pride. Hmm. When Christ gave the Sermon on the Mount, I think there's something in there about this difference between pride and humility. And it's all about recognizing that we are nothing without him. Hmm. And that requires humility. Hmm. And it's so lacking in our culture, in our modern, modern society, where we always have to put on these fronts, like we got it all figured out or we're <laughs> holding everything together. And yeah,
0: That's absolutely right. right. Absolutely right. This is why you mentioned Matthew 8, 1 to 4. This is the, hmm. the hmm. account here of the man with leprosy. And you say that this man's attitude should be ours. Can you explain what you mean
1: by that? I mean, we are all the leper before we're saved. Hmm. So, so Christ is coming down the mountain. This is uh, just after the Sermon on the Mount. So he's just been talking to all these Jews, mostly, maybe some Gentiles in there as well, but mostly Jews. Hmm. And he gives this long sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew chapter five, six, and seven. And he's talking about the law of Moses. He's elaborating on that and saying, no, 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 no. the law of Moses isn't sufficient. If you look at a, a woman with lust, you're committing adultery in your heart. If you look at a, another man with hatred, you're committing murder in your heart. And then he says, Be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, imagine yourself in this crowd listening to this sermon by Jesus and just thinking, What? Like, you're raising the bar way too high. There's no way I can be that good. I mean, we can't even obey the law of Moses perfectly. People are probably thinking this in their heart, right? On the outside, of course, Mm. we put on fronts, oh, no, I'm doing the right thing. uh, But people deep inside are probably convicted, thinking, this is crazy, this is impossible. How can we possibly, right? And their whole lives, Mm. Mm. the Jewish system, it's all about the torah and the law of moses and and keeping all of the different ritual whatever and and always making sure you're clean and if you're unclean then you have to go through the process of purification to become clean and this is what guides their day-to-day life
0: i think that is generally true of people actually i think we do have a tendency to whoever we are wherever we are to look at you know this rule this regulation, if I follow this, uh-huh. then I'm going to be righteous. I'm going to be okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> it doesn't matter what it is. But that is not the case because, as indeed in this story here, the leper says, look, you have the power to make me well. If you want to. You can do it. Uh-huh. We are fundamentally and radically dependent upon him, are we not? It's not uh-huh. what, you know, following all the rules and all the regulations, all the good principles in the world are just not going to do it because we're not up to the job. We have to have him in our lives, both to save us, but also to empower us. So I I see that clearly happening there, of course, in that Palestinian context there. Mm. But I think it's true of all of us throughout time, really, isn't it?
1: I I agree completely. And think about it. Are you one of the people in that crowd Mm -hmm. who's listening to Jesus and trying to justify yourself in your heart and saying, well, I don't get it. I guess I just keep doing the best I can. Or are you the leper? Mm-hmm. Now, in the context of their society, the leper was an outcast, but also from a legal perspective, he was not allowed to approach clean people. Yes. He had to call out and say, unclean, unclean, and wear a a little plaque around his neck so that people would see that he was a leper so they wouldn't get too close to him and and inadvertently catch the disease. But think about from his perspective, he had nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. He says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So he acknowledges that he has faith that Christ can heal him. And he says, if you're willing. And Jesus reaches out his hands and touches him. And he says, I am willing to be clean. And so think of, again, about being a person in the crowd who just listened to that sermon and saying, the bar's too high. There's no way I can do it. And then being witness to this leper coming and bowing down before him. And we need to choose to be the leper and not somebody in the crowd. And every single one of us has that opportunity to make that decision, but it requires that we humble ourselves and realize we're Mm -hmm. completely without hope outside of Christ.
0: We have nothing to offer as well. Mm -hmm. That's key to this, isn't it? Because Mm -hmm. all this pride is centered in the idea that somehow Mm -hmm. I can big myself up. I can offer something that's going to put myself right with whatever it is, whether it's with God or with society or whatever I'm going to prove myself. This leper character here has uh, is desperate has nothing to offer at all yeah. and in that humility comes this salvation from Christ which moves us then into the fruit of the spirit which then is not from us it is from him
1: that's right and that's where i want to go back and just think about those fruits of the spirit to me when i look mm. at that list it's not so much i have to try to be loving i have to try to be joyful i'm going to do my best to be peaceful or patient mm. it's rather a check for myself, if I'm not experiencing those things, if I'm not experiencing love, and I'm rather always angry or or hating people, or if I'm not experiencing joy, I'm always depressed and in misery. My question is, have I knelt before Christ? Am I humbling myself and allowing him to, to live through me? Yes. Because those are the fruits of trying to do it alone, trying to do it myself, trying to find something within me to accomplish. Yeah. And so I don't see it as a list of things I need to try to do. Mm. I see it as a, as a checklist of, mm. am I really trusting the Lord enough? Absolutely. Am I really, do I know who he is? Do I know what he's done for me? Because if I have, I have inexpressible joy, the gospel says.
0: I, I completely agree with you. Right? Yes. Okay. So yeah, they're not laws.
1: <laughs> no. They're not no.
0: principles like that. They, as you say, they are a way of gauging to what extent we are close to Christ. Uh-huh. Absolutely. And you know, I'm concerned about this because as I said to you in the email, you know, there have been so many times in my life where, you know, I've struggled <laughs> to pray and I've struggled to read scripture. And there have been times when I've felt not very close to God. And at those times I could feel condemned. But that's not how this is functioning. They're not functioning like little laws, little principles. Oh, you're not loving enough. Oh, you're condemned. You're not joyful enough. Oh, you're condemned. They're more, as you say, like checks where you can say, just a minute, this is a sign to me that I need not to feel condemned, but that I need to come back to him, seek him again. It's that, hmm, I probably talked about this on the podcast before, guy called Brian Austin ran a bookshop in London, Christian bookshop. And one of his things that he said to me, which had such an impact on me, was you know, he would come to those times in his life where he would feel like, oh, he's he's failed again. You know, it's he's at the bottom again. And it was actually at those times when, funnily enough, he would experience God act in his life in such a way as to say, I'm going to bless you now. I love you. Now choose to walk with me again. Mm. And that's really stuck with me. Um, so, you know, I totally agree with you. We do need to be close to him and experience these gifts of the spirit, but they should never be something that function to condemn us. They're reminders and they are the fruit indeed of a relationship with Christ that's always there for us. Mm. Um, and they are crucial for these days ahead.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Just imagine that, I mean, the, the vine and the branches, as John said, you know, I am. The, he is the vine, we are the branches. He that abideth in Christ, the same will bring forth much fruit. So imagine... Grafting a branch into a vine and it bearing fruit. Mm. Something that we can experience here in this life. And it's a beautiful metaphor of how when we plug into Christ, these fruits of the spirit will manifest in our life Mm. because we're plugged into the right vine. Yeah. And so plugging into the right vine is all about kneeling before him and saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Yes. Yeah.
0: Indeed. So everything we've said there is on the level of our personal relationship with god and that of course that's crucial that is primary mm. but i want to end with to bring this around to the question of our corporate life as christians mm-hmm. in this situation going forward because we're not just to live our christian lives as isolated individuals we are exhorted in the book of hebrews to not to give up fellowship yeah to be together and that may be very difficult i'm fine still finding that difficult mm-hmm. so how can we join our fruit together <laughs> to be Mm -hmm. mutually strengthened in the days ahead. Um, Is there anything from your experience that can help us in that uh, quest?
1: Well, I really like that you're involved in the stand of the park and that you're making a commitment to that, Julian. I think uh, sometimes we only think about our Christian relationships with others. But, you know, even when you're going to the church and you're surrounded by people that claim to be Christian, doesn't mean all of them are. And when you go to a stand in the park, you assume that because they don't maybe call themselves a Christian that they aren't. And That's a good point. I think we need mm. to kind of drop those uh, facades and just treat everyone as a child of the Most High, a created thing who is loved by the Creator. And these fruits of the Spirit can manifest in both situations, whether you're at the park or mm. at your Sunday service and intimate relationship is important in both contexts, and hopefully so that you can be a good influence on all those around you as somebody who exhibits the fruit of the Spirit and is an encouragement for others to graft themselves into the vine. They can't graft themselves, but allow themselves to be grafted into his vine and also be bearers of his Spirit.
0: Yes, actually, that's very good, because one of the fruit one of the aspects of the fruit of the spirit. I I I don't like calling them fruits of the spirit. Um one of the one of the aspects is patience. And I suppose over the last few months I've been rather impatient about this in the sense of what's God doing? I have this sense that God is doing something. I've said this on air a number of times and I don't know what it is. And I've imagined to myself that perhaps you know I shall eventually bump up against some other person who is professes a Christian faith, thinking the similar lines and perhaps we'll sort of you know worship together together. Well, this is totally in my imagination. I have no idea and I'm impatient for something to happen, but actually maybe I need to take hold more of the fruit of the spirit in this dimension mm. and be patient about this. God is doing something. Amen. God is doing something out there and relationships take very very long time to develop. Um I need to stop being impatient about this. It could take months and years for anything much to happen in a way that I would recognize. And I want it to happen now, you know, but um yeah, you've spoken into my situation <laughs> with that, actually. That's something I need to be aware of prayerfully.
1: You know, Pastor Stephen mm. mentioned something else on that, and that was this idea that we have been conditioned in the Christian church to think that Somebody uh, who says a prayer and raises their hand has become a believer, (laughs) and um, that's the wrong way to look at it. Mm. And I couldn't agree with him more. I think we need to stop worrying about counting the numbers and rather just exhibit the fruit and allow God to—we are seed planters, and God is going to be responsible for the harvest. Um, Earlier we talked about me living out the Great Commission in everyday life. I'm a seed planter. I'm constantly just trying to share the truth in love and exhibit the the fruit that the Lord's already put in me and, and, and use his gifts as he's given me and plant seeds. Yeah. The whole point of that is just to plant seeds. He's going to do the harvest and I have to be patient and trust that he is going to do those things in his time and, and just keep planting seeds.
0: Absolutely yes indeed spoken so much into my situation here and i'm sure spoken into the situation of many people listening as well who are experiencing similar things um they are difficult days ahead there are so many concerns and many things that we haven't even talked about here today that are shaping up and these are not things that are just in the conspiracy theorists imagination and it's become very clear over the last two or three years that uh Many of these concerns are very real and they're going to be very challenging for for all people. Mm. But in many ways, I think even more so for Christians as we are going to be told in various ways that we need to bow before the state. Mm. And no, our Lord and Saviour is Jesus Christ. It is not the state. It is not some Mm -hmm. conglomeration of corporations and what they want to do with the world. It is God's world, not theirs. Mm. And uh, we need to be empowered by him to meet that challenge, and the greatest way in which we can be empowered is through being close to him and exhibiting this fruit, Mm -hmm. and being close to others who are also exhibiting this fruit and joining together, wherever we find that happening. It's surprising the ways in which God can work, if we are patient to work with that. So once again, thank you for reminding me of the importance of that aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, patience. So thanks very much, Jeremiah, for this conversation. It's been great to speak to you again, and I hope this has been helpful for other people. So thanks very much indeed for coming on to share your your thoughts and your experience with us.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's been an honor to be on again.
0: Show notes for this program can be found at The Mind Renewed, themindrenewed.com. Podcast music by the brilliant Anthony Rajikov, attribution, non-commercial, share alike, 4.0 international. You have been listening to me, Julian Charles, and my guest, Jeremiah Allen and I very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future.